Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. David Humphrey is a New York artist who has shown nationally and internationally. He's received the Guggenheim Fellowship and the Rome Prize, amongst other awards. An anthology of his art writing, Blind Handshake, was published by Periscope Publishing in 2010. He teaches in the MFA programs at Columbia and the University of Pennsylvania and is represented by the Friedrichs and Fraser Gallery in New York. David will have a solo show at Marshall Wood Gallery in Atlanta in the fall and at Friedrichs and Fraser in New York in the spring. I went to his Long Island City studio to talk with him about our mutual hometown of Pittsburgh, gold toilets, oboes, and a lot more. Here's our conversation. I did in school. It, it's easy to imagine that you didn't. Yeah. But it's, you know, it seems like it could be underwritten by that. No, I did it in school, but, um, and when I grew up, I learned how to paint from a guy who lived, well, I don't know if I really learned from him, but uh, two blocks away from my house, there was a guy who had an art studio on the second floor and a gallery on the first floor, and he did plein air paintings. Wow. Kind of sergeant-y. And, wow, what was um, his name? His name was Philip Savato. Huh. And, uh, Pittsburgh uh, Treasure. Yeah, Third Street Gallery, it was called. Oh, yeah, I remember re- hearing about that place. I didn't ever see it. Yeah, it, he did, you know, they looked like Sargent. They were the plein air paintings and portraits, and he was really good. Yeah. And I used to clean his studio. That was my my lessons in painting. Old school, that's <laughs> yeah. great. Yeah, I was you like... You can graduate, you can clean the brushes, and next thing you know, you can prime the canvases. <laughs> yeah, I didn't stay that long. <laughs> but I, I did that kind of you know, hanging around, learning by observation, like, oh, you can do this for, like, he does this for a living. Well, we're both from Pittsburgh, so why don't you tell me, well, you can start off by talking about growing up. Um, So you grew up in Pittsburgh, and were you, I feel like growing up there, the one good thing, or one of the good things, amongst the the many negatives of it, was that there was the Carnegie Museum, and there was a lot of the Science Center and all that stuff. So yes. did you grow up with, was art a big part of growing up, or it, was it, it just w- something you did? It was not a big part of it, but I did go to all the Carnegie Internationals, Yeah, like through the 60s, and I remember seeing these very bold, simple paintings, maybe Ellsworth Kelly, uh, kinetic art, like Soto and Brazilian yeah. modernism, and uh, and I definitely had a kind of interest, a vicarious background sense that this might be something I wanted to do. Yeah. But I never did a thing about it uh, until my dad, who was a kind of a Sunday sculptor, had some plaster and chicken wire in his basement. And I saw how easy it was to, to throw together a form covered in muck yeah. and have this kind of modern art, instant modern art, which now in my memory, none of them have survived, but they they were a little bit Franz Vesti. Yeah. Um, just kind of makeshift kind of yeah, raw make, forms. Make, yeah, exactly. Like, fuck you. I don't mean anything. Yeah. Modern art. Were they painted, too? I never painted them. No, they were just pure plaster. I liked the plaster. Yeah. Uh, I should have painted them. And then I got... The, the, my the school I went to, Edgewood, mm-hmm. had har- hardly any art. And so I took some classes at the... What was called the Arts and Crafts Center, now Pittsburgh Center for the Arts. Yeah. So I carved a head in marble. I took a class with a guy 
who named Charles Pitcher, weirdly, mm-hmm. who would stand in front of the class and would say, paint a brown shape here and then wash it out with some blue and then you take your palette knife and go plunk, 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 and what do you know, instant city at night. What? And everyone <laughs> had the same city at night painting. Yeah, it was like the Bob Ross approach. Yeah, totally in Bob Ross. <laughs> But I got into art school. I got into Micah with that stuff. Oh, that's cool. And and then the game changed. Yeah. And and it was so straight, you knew out of high school, I'm going to go to to art. Straight school. up, yeah. I was. It was pretty much um, stoner, sort of psychedelic spirituality, some weird idea of like hippie, alternative, you know, f- fantasy. Yeah. But enough to get into art school, and once once I hit there, then it was kind of everything I had to remediate everything yeah and which was exciting I liked it was your dad into that idea no I think they were into me doing anything other than just smoking weed all the time yeah so they were happy that I appeared to be motivated right well how did he get I mean he just liked to do that stuff I think he liked it I think he he liked having hobbies and he was kind of um kind of a general a skilled person, yeah. But he, and he was in advertising, and I think he needed to find a place away from the kind of ego punishing, self, yeah. mi- you know, minimizing madmen uh, kind of culture yeah. of the office. Was your was your mom autistic too? Or? She was not, but she did uh, believe in music. Yeah. So she started to play clarinet at about the time I took some piano lessons, mm-hmm. and she. She um, encouraged it. So that was around. Yeah, around was the, the same house time. full of music. Yeah, I have three sisters, and they all kind of went through music drill. Two of them are professional now. Oh, really? String players. So that was that was alive. But it, was it classical? Yeah, yeah. There's like a classical thing in Pittsburgh. I feel like I remember growing up. My mom used to clean house. Well, she cleaned houses for a living. Like she would. Um, take care of these women who are a little older and clean the house and help out with the kids and all that stuff. And I remember going to Oakland, like a lot of, they were well off, you know, they were all in nice houses and stuff. And I remember going to these nice houses in Oakland or in Shadyside or Squirrel Hill and there's always classical music playing. And it, between, I think between that and then going to the Carnegie and seeing, you know, paintings there, there was something really alluring about that classical music and fine art that coming from Carnegie and it's very working class you know there just wasn't that wasn't around it just seemed like a really interesting alluring world that I didn't know about it's true there's something it's it was it's like um what would you call it like the fine arts the high high art something like that uh this this tremendous achievement of the western culture but, but you know every culture kind of has a version of it but which seemed to me like a like a a Trojan horse of radicality. Yeah, that somehow it was all very acceptable, and and uh, honored by you know civic power, mm-hmm. but which had in it a kind of a, a grain of of um, what do you call it? Critique or yeah. counterculture? Counterculture. Way, yeah. It sort of it spoke to um, resistance values. Yeah, I think snuck in. And and I talked to a lot of people who are artists who used to skateboard. And I feel like that's there's a, a similarity there between the skateboarding, there's an art form to it, but it's definitely punk in a way because it's it's counterculture and it's defacing property. Right. You know, <laughs> right. it's got like, 
the best of both worlds in a way. This I was born a little too early. I I, uh, I was completely excited by the idea of skateboarding, boarding, mm-hmm. and I took my sister's you know metal roller skates and took the wheels off and screwed them into the bottom of a piece of wood. Yeah, and stood on top of a hill, Pittsburgh, of course, oh, hills everywhere, plenty and, of hills, and then just you know kind of rattled my legs out until I couldn't take it and jumped off. Yeah, and so there was not yet the kind of uh, the incredible technology. Yeah, it just wasn't there. Of, of, yeah. It wasn't there yet. Rubber wheels started to show up, and that was very exciting. Yeah. That you could actually turn your skateboard. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because uh, that's something I think also very Pittsburgh. I grew up there, and it's hard to skateboard there because there's hills everywhere. <laughs> it's not really conducive, but we had the death wobbles. We called them death wobbles when you're yeah. going so fast down a hill. Yeah, exactly. That's my, my greatest injuries were always from like hitting a pothole or something, going like 50 miles per hour, like shaking down a hill. Did you ever ski? No, I didn't. I snowboarded a couple of times, but I never skied. Because it seemed like in those early days that, you know, there was a model of skateboarding that would be like skiing. Yeah, it's like you slalom. Just, yeah, get on the top of a hill and find your way to the bottom. Yeah. Well, those guys out in L.A., they would build those. Or they did the... You know those like um, half pipes. And yeah, and those water, those dried up. Well, I don't know oh, yeah. what to call like aqueduct things where they would just skate down or it's pipes. It's the Los Angeles River. I yeah. think it's just, just a cement. Down it. Right, it's yeah. fantastic. Yeah, it had like a surfing vibe to it in the beginning. So, were the steel mills still there when you when you were growing up, or did they start? Were they starting to go away? I think they were. There there were traces, but it wasn't. You know, it wasn't full on. Like they were beginning to be phased out. I remember. So this is I'm dating myself now, but was a kid during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm-hmm. And so it was a very vivid thing, the idea of nuclear annihilation. Yeah. And so I remember waking up in the middle of the night and hearing boom, boom, boom. Mm-hmm. And we were told, you know, in our civic pride, Pittsburgh, yeah. would be like a major target because, because of industry. industry. yeah. And I went to the window and I saw the sky lighting up with, you know, red. And I thought, this is it. Yeah. We're there at, the, uh, at nuclear annihilation. But it was just the steel mills doing their smelting. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, well, I remember being in grade school and going through the drills. I think it was second grade or third really? grade. Still. Yeah, they still did it. And we'd have to go under the desk if a certain alarm went off. We'd all duck and hide. And remember, well, at that point, I was pretty young. I don't know, remember what my age was. But uh, the day, what was it called? The day after or something? Oh, sure. Was that what it was called? It was the nuclear fallout. Like, I don't even remember it, but it scared the shit out of me. But is this is this Reagan era you're talking about? Yeah, it would have been. Because he, yeah. he he sort of revived um, the Cold nuclear War. Yeah, yeah. Ni- nuclear anxiety and yeah, and I think he had a, in the back of his mind a kind of Christian millennial scenario. Yeah, a little backup um, escape plan. Right. It's weird when you're that young though, having to go through that. I can't imagine my kid, you know, in second grade, right. ducking under desks, and, you know, being told that a nuclear bomb may go off. You might have to, you know. I guess they have shooters to worry about now. Yeah, it's a different. It's all. It just changes. Yeah. Do they have Do they have drills at your school? Just, you know, like, okay, kids, just in case a, uh, a bad man comes in here with a gun. Not here's what yet. We do. Not yet. But I'm sure that's coming. You know. Yeah, that's a whole other can of worms. <laughs> but yeah, and so um, when you were growing up in Pittsburgh, you went straight to MICA, so you moved to Baltimore. I did. And it was, it was a big. Was it? A relief, or was it a big change? How? What was that like? It was a huge relief because the high school I went to in Pittsburgh, um, there were no artist types, very little interest in art. There was a few kind of um, stoner, kind of rocker people, but no one was 
no one seemed very motivated. Yeah. And when I arrived at Baltimore, it was this, I felt like I was finding my tribe. Right. And people were into it. People were into yeah. it, and they were kind of, like, really good. And so I had to catch up. Yeah. I realized I'd been in a, in a pocket. And so that, that kind of remedial energy I still have. Yeah. It's kind of... Um, you know, it's, it's in the it's the background anxiety, and I think maybe it's part of the background anxiety of being an artist that it's possible that you're a fraud. Right. It's possible that the whole thing is just like a kind of cooked up um, uh, trick. Yeah, it's a scam. It's a Magic. scam. Magic. It's yeah. artifice. Right. Magic and artifice and all of that. And so uh, the more you learn, the more you kind of gather, read, mm-hmm. uh, supplement you can kind of talk yourself out of that for a yeah. moment or you can talk yourself into the brilliance of its of its uh, charlatanry that actually you know the trickster is an important cultural role and yeah. our, our job is to is to kind of undermine everything and create new perspectives maybe yeah it's funny i had that in school but it was more when i started working into abstraction and i felt like i had to defend it so i would learn all about that and then i put so much process into my work so you may not understand what it's about, or you can't, you might not get it, quote unquote, but right. you can't deny that I've worked really hard on it. So that was, you know, it's like the blue collar kind of. I have that. I, I definitely feel like this thing of work, that, yeah. it's, that it's labor, and that the labor, not ju- it doesn't just bestow meaning or value, but that also it's it's kind of a theme even yeah. in it. This this making, this thing of making, manufacturing maybe. So you're working really hard in Maryland. Right? I worked really hard. I worked all I worked maniacally all the time. And then summers would come, I'd work right through it. Yeah. So I ended up finishing early, strangely. So uh, and then I did not go to get an MFA. I came to New York, went to the New York Studio School, thinking I was going to study with Philip Guston, who mm-hmm. I just uh, encountered my junior year, and. But at the studio school, found another sort of sub tradition, mm-hmm. which was what this tradition of, um, oh, I guess it would be Cezanne into cubism, into abstraction mm-hmm. sort of um, model, and that was interesting. That was just a, another inflection. It was kind of the Hans Hoffman school, radiated, you know, yeah. after his death. Well, what were you making in, in Micah? Like, what kind of work? Well, when I sort of crawled out of uh, foundation, kind of homework yeah. assignments, I found myself doing um, sort of psychologically charged, stylized abstraction in the tradition of Beckman with some Picasso rolled mm-hmm. in. So that's so in that um, mental space, Gustin came as a sort of uh, permission. Yeah kind of a brilliant um, fusion of whatever it is, formal materiality and and kind of like really gnarled um, content. Yeah. So when you when you came to New York and you it tweaked in a sense that like you started getting interested in breaking down the composition more like pictorially. I did. I, I sort of, and stuff like that. Yeah, I took I took that seriously. I I, uh, I thought if I pulverize my my painting language into its constituent parts, mm-hmm. they could be reorganized according to new principles, whatever they were. And those new principles were a little bit had had a little bit to do with pop for me and and a kind of. Um, sexually charged uh, narrative mm-hmm. um, f- figuration and so that's kind of the 
I've been following that trajectory, if, it, if you can call it a trajectory, because it's yeah. kind of pulverized and has many, many possible um, valences. Yeah. So, and al- along this kind of, you know, development and working through your artwork, music's important to you as well. So what it, what's happening along the timeline of music during this time? So... I I, th- I think since I was a teenager, I'd, 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 I loved the idea of a new thing. Yeah. And and then I would hit the wall of having to practice. And it always <laughs> thwarted me. And I'd sort of be able to bullshit my way through some thrills. Yeah. Uh, and then hit the kind of limit of it and, and then not somehow have the discipline or the guidance to, to get through it. So then I quit for a while each mm-hmm. time. So when I got to New York... I was playing recorder, uh-huh. um, doing Baroque music and Renaissance music, and I and that somehow led to oboe. I thought, oh, let's let's thicken this up with oboe, and so I did, did a little bit of Baroque oboe, and then just on your own, or were you playing? Yeah, just on my own, playing trios. I I went to NYU for a master's in um, liberal studies, mm-hmm. and I joined their wind band, so mm-hmm. it was in an orchestra, and that was cool. But then I thought the oboe was so pinched so much pressure through one tiny hole yeah it's a real that, the, that suddenly the saxophone just seemed like the most easy delicious kind of lugubrious thing and so i so i started playing sax yeah. and fell and kind of woke that up in the middle of no wave yeah so i was i had a band called details at 11 this is like 1985 or 6 and we played all the clubs and yeah. I made a record and it was kind of cool until you know just whatever the band this the sort of family pressure of band life uh, in, was cutting too deep into the rest of my yeah. my career and time. And it's a commitment. Were you touring too? Yeah, we did. Well, we did. A, it was a German record label called mm-hmm. Dossier, so we did a German tour. But otherwise, we pretty much played played locally. You could do. Yeah. You could tour New York. Yeah. <laughs> endlessly. Um, did you ever play in D.C.? Never played in D.C. Yeah, I mean, we were aware. I mean, it was funny. At the, back then, it, there was GoGo, DC GoGo, and I yeah. guess the sort of post-punk scene was 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 coming up. We played. Um, I'm trying to think of our peers, like Three Teens Kill Four. We played with a lot. Uh-huh. Uh, a couple of the members of our band played with Elliot Sharp mm-hmm. um, in a lot of those kind of settings. Well, that scene too. There was a lot of New York energy around that. From what I know, I mean, I wasn't there, but. It seemed like there was a lot of energy around that music at the time in a lot of venues. Yes. It's not like it is now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess Williamsburg seemed like Williamsburg seems like it has a lot of venues. And yeah, maybe there's a lot more kind of bar-scaled places. Yeah, it's a different I think it's a different vibe than it. maybe that kind of um, in Bushwick there's a few you know kind of I don't know underground like venues, not so much bars where you play music. Right that kind of deal you know it's 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 i don't know how not to get too much into real estate in new york and all that stuff but i don't know how the avant-garde survives or how it works now with real estate and the way things i mean there's a few venues where obviously they've got a big space and they got it on the cheap and they're doing like shea stadium places like that and bushwick are just like you know just open spaces right and they're putting on whatever shows they want but it feels a lot tighter now than than it must have been back in the 80s. Yes, there was a kind of, um, between CBGB's, 8BC, mm-hmm. Limbo Lounge, Pyramid Club, Knitting Factory, yeah. Danceteria, 
you could pretty much cycle through those, and that would be a very robust year of That's a tour. <laughs> yeah, that's a tour. That yeah. was, that was you have the enough tour. gigs to tour yeah. in New York. King Tut's Wawa Hut, we played there. Anyway, it was, it was great. Yeah. But then there is a certain point where um, that kind of initial thrill diminishes. Yeah. And you're just like staying up really late and you're being stiffed on your on what you're supposed to be paid and right. you're schlepping your, your gear and you smell like smoke mm-hmm. and maybe you've had too many drinks and it's like, really? How long? How Can long I keep this up? <laughs> keep up? But now I'm back and playing again. It's really, it's great. It's really fun. Yeah. So are you going to be, are, are you playing with specific people now? Or are you doing more collaborative things? How is it working well, now? Well, I did, in, in, my, in my typical uh, pathological way, I took up bass. I just, I'd never played a string instrument. I've always secretly wanted to play bass. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of learned it. And, and part of the learning was to saying yes to every band who needed one. So I played yeah. with lots of different bands. And they've kind of boiled out. And now I'm, I've just got a couple, couple things. I, I've got a... I'm playing with with a band that does, is trying to decide on a name, which is the original material, but kind of blues rockish, mm-hmm. and it's good for me as a bass player. Get my get my uh, Jack Bruce on a little bit, mm-hmm. and the uh, and the other one is with my wife, and we're called Frogs mm-hmm. with a, with a P and a Z, and we we can do acoustic sets, and so we we've, we've been playing a lot at art galleries. Mm-hmm. People have a show, and they say, "Hey, could you do oh, a hi. gig?" Because we want to get people into the we want to get people in somewhere during the show. Yeah. You know, especially if it's like a Brooklyn gallery. There's this thing, which is the opening happens, and then it's really quiet. Yeah. It's kind of a nice venue. So, yeah, it's a nice venue. You know, it, there's a different kind of um, vibe and attention to it. and You yeah. can, I don't know. I, I kind of like playing those shows. It's intimate and alive. It's You don't get the kind of the raw power of a full drum kit and everybody yeah. amped up and, you know... Uh, sound waves pulsing through you. Right. I played a couple of times with a band called Kathy. Do you know Kathy? Do you know Jeremy Willis? I don't. Um, they're they're a Brooklyn, I don't know, alt rock. Yeah. Something. He, I'm sure he would hate that. <laughs> alt rock. Yeah. Oh. Alt rock. It sounds so late '90s. Yeah. So today's alt rock, yes. not '90s alt rock. <laughs> no, uh, Sirius. It's so funny in Sirius FM. Uh, art. Alt rock of the '90s, zeros and teens, or whatever they say. Yeah, who's of... the biggest alt rock of the '90s? I'm trying to think of what alt rock sounds like. Not Spin Doctors, right? Is that alt yeah, rock? Alt rock. I mean, alt rock seems like it would encompass everybody from Radiohead to um, I don't know. Like anything that's just not conventional. I guess rock. alt. I guess maybe alt rock would tend to be quartets mm-hmm. of like. Bit two guitars, a bass, and a drummer, and a singer. Yeah. Like maybe uh, who'd, um, Vampire Weekend. Oh, okay. Would be a pure case. Right. What would Primus be? It seems like they'd be kind of alt rocky, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're definitely alt. It's definitely yeah. rock. Yeah. Labels. I haven't thought of them in a while. No, I know. That's a nice thought, though. It makes me smile to think Prim- of it. <laughs> Did you see that Lollapalooza? Remember they were, was it the first one or the second one, I think? If I'm not mistaken, I, I went to one of the Lollapaloozas, and, you know, when you go to something like that when you're younger, it has a big effect on you, like, really remember it. But that was with the Beastie Boys and Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah, that's a great Verve that's a, and Flaming Lips. I mean, it was a pretty amazing. That's a great moment. Yeah, it was a pretty amazing concert. Yeah, I um, I feel self-conscious a little bit. I, I play with 
with some bands, this, this, this rock band that doesn't have a name yet, is filled with people who know every song and every player that ever was recorded. Yeah. And I feel like the sort of slowpoke in the back, like, you know, I, I kind of know that I'll say, what are those chords again? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, I got that. Yeah. But I don't know that cut on that right. other album, on that, you know, B-side. Do you feel like that with artwork too? Like with in teaching art? That you've kind of, you, I feel like every artist navigates their river and it goes through certain areas and you focus on certain things to connect with your experiences or whatever. Right. And then there's some people who just know everything about every artist. I'm a little more broad in that I do. In the art. I'm a kind of museum geek and so I've been to a bazillion museums and uh, have looked at every bloody painting in the, in the place and so I can in my teaching sort of invoke artists that can bear on this particular image or yeah. you know, kind of genealogy of an image. And then also as an art critic, mm-hmm. made it made it a regular habit to see to see shows. Yeah. Which, you know, for like the last thirty years. Yeah. So that's something I'm trying to dial that down. I th- I feel like there's a certain point at which maybe maybe you don't need to keep up with it quite as much. Right. I was listening to an interview with um, this guy Jeff Dyer. Uh-huh. You know Jeff Dyer, the essayist. He's got a he's a, a novelist. He has a great book called um, uh, Jeff in Venice, Death in Veronese. And so it crosses over to the art world. There's a whole little section about the Venice Biennale. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, he was asked in this interview about his, influ- his influences right now. Mm-hmm. And he said something like, well, I am, I am my biggest influence that, that when you're a young person and you read a book for the first time you read an author for the first time it's like one in a hundred books you've ever read in your life yeah and so the proportion of that book to your entire reading is very significant yeah whereas when you get to be 60 let's say which i think he is um it's one in thousands of books right. and so can't possibly have the same kind of powerful effect and so and also having written and worked for x number of years the, the sort of uh, the momentum and sort of uh, living, rolling character of your practice mm-hmm. has its own kind of urgencies that, that aren't, isn't quite as suggestible, perhaps, as it used to be. Yeah, it's funny how that, and it's in stages over the course of your life, too, because I remember the first show I ever saw when I came to New York was uh, two-person. It was Carol Dunham and Larry Pittman in Soho somewhere, and... Um, it had a huge where effect. That was. Yeah, huge, sure. Like seeing those surfaces for the first time, I was like, "Wait, you can do that?" You know, like Pittman. I can see. I can see how that is tape, right? You're yeah. kind of a, you're sort of a tape meister. I do use tape. Yeah, I use tape. I maybe a little less these days than I used to, but yeah, you do use it for a lot of stuff. But yeah, I think for me, it that that had an effect. Oh, I just didn't know how he made it. And I didn't know surfaces could be that layered. It was like this right. thin layering to me that was really interesting. And then Carol Dunham was the styrofoam ball pieces. Oh, I was like, what the hell? Right. Like, you can put that on the canvas? It was just, it was a weird, you know, awesome show to see for your that first That is show. an awesome show. I can't even remember where that is. It's a kind of inspired combination. Yeah, it was somewhere in Soho. I don't remember. It was when I first visited. I love how those Pitmans are, like, laminated. They're almost like a, it's almost a kind of a topographic, very, very thin topographic object. Yeah. They're so, to me, they're so deep. 
And that's something through my history of working that's always been slightly frustrating, maybe, when people talk about the paintings being really flat. But to me, it's, I love micro kind of layers. It's, to me, that seems like a real depth because it's not just taking thick paint and slopping it on and there, oh, right. that's really thick. It's this, it's time depth in a way because it's these thin layers that are very subtly put on top of each other. So you get a very deep depth in a very shallow amount of space, you know, yes. that I'm always really intrigued by. Like, uh, I love uh, woodblock prints. And I feel like those are really deep. Even though they're flat, you get the sense of each of those very thin layers of cut out wood that right. are you know, applied on top of each other. That's kind of like my favorite depth, you know. That's cool. It's like a but it's like two different depths. The depth of the of that literal stratified mm -hmm. space and then the the pictorial one with the sky way off in the yeah. distance and the building that's behind the other thing and and I guess that that, that always fascinates me the sort of two-foldedness of of a picture yeah um i was thinking about how i love how in the abstract expressionists mm -hmm. called their works pictures right even if it was barnett newman yeah and uh because somehow this thing of the the four sides the window you look through still haunted them yeah even as they were you know demolishing it yeah i know it's it and the way he talks about it's you know at the um the National Gallery, they had, I don't know if it's permanent, but they have his, um, is it Stations of the Cross, I think they're called? Yeah. That right. that installation in that top tower part. It's fantastic. Which is spiritual. I mean, it's amazing. But then when you get off the elevator to go into that room, it's a video of him talking, like, you know, and it's just, <laughs> you can only, I can only listen to so much before I'm like, oh, I can't listen to this guy talk. I just need to go look at his paintings. I think that's, uh, that's why he didn't win when he ran for mayor. Yeah. <laughs> his delivery. But I like somehow the Newman saying, you know, if, if if people understood my work, it would be peace in our time. Oh work. yeah, that would be. <laughs> everyone would be yeah. peaceful. Yeah. But how do you feel about um, having your work reproduced? It seems very friendly to reproduction. It does. That, that it uh, that it thrives on it, and maybe in this kind of world of JPEGs and and print and um, you know whatever it is, the, the kind of uh, metastasizing of, of reproduction do you does, is this something you embrace or that it's, a, it's kind of a it just rolls over you and and you like it or I mean I guess I like the fact that they do reproduce nicely but I really feel like you have to see them in person it's frustrating because there's a lot of work that you see it in reproduction and you know oh I've got to see that because I can't really get a handle on what that's like so you your mind fills in the gap that I need to see it. Whereas I feel like my work, you could see it in reproduction and think you know it, you know? And a lot of people who do say the work is super flat or really taped or there's no brush in it, they haven't seen it in person because there is, although it's minimal, there is a texture there and there is, you know, surface and stuff going on. But, sure. So I think that's, it's sometimes the closer you get to something, you know, the, the easier it is to overlook it for the viewer. So I worry about that in a sense. And there is something about the boundary between two colored shapes, mm -hmm. the way they push into each other or nudge up or over. Or there, there might be a, t a tectonic relationship yeah. and that it's more than just a kind of a hue buzz, although that's part of it. But there's a, that's the pl it's the moment where the matter of the paint sort of reveals itself. Yeah. And, and in a way, maybe even 
kind of sabotages the image, the coherence yeah. of it. Yeah, and, but I love that kind of the architectural side of painting too, to where you see how it's built and you can see where these things are being butted up and overlapping and I, I like leaving that in the work. I'm actually, you know, in the publication that I showed you where the things are reproduced and they're, they're very small paintings, it's the first time I think that I've had a reproduction of the work where you can actually see that stuff because usually the paintings are so big that when you see a reproduction, you're losing any sure. surface. It's just you have to pan back from it. But these are nice because you can actually see some of that. It's and a funny paradox because like a, a big painting you think of as being emphatically physical. Yeah. It addresses the body of the person looking at it. Its its color force is a is a is a kind of a hit. Yeah. And the thickness of it and its and its place in the architecture and yet in reproduction it be, it becomes more of an image whereas a small right. painting you see all the you can see some canvas texture yeah. and um, the corners, the corners can, all that stuff right. in it. Yeah. Well, this is the first time that I've had that in reproduction like that. So it, that's the one byproduct of it that I really like. Well, it's nice too because you can then play against the physicality of the book. Yeah. Um, as opposed to screen, the disembodied character of screen. Yeah. But in doing, because since I do do video and that's a big part of my animation is a big part of my work, I love what that gives too because the sound, the time, the movement, you know, and that reproduces extremely well because they're all digital. I'm making them on the computer. You know, right. even if I scan in paper, or scan in collage or whatever, it it's all high resolution when I do it. So it, it reproduces well, but I like that time, that sense of, you know, space in the same way that a large painting forces its physicality on you like you have it's a one-to-one -one bodily relationship to that image right. you know um i like the fact that those moving images the time is really aggressive that you're either seeing this specific part of it or you're catching this sound that happens during it and, and that I, I really like in relation to the other stuff as well yeah that's so interesting because the it of it the thing itself whether it's a a play, a picture of a place, or encoded information mm -hmm. is always elsewhere. Yeah, and so you're having this experience in which there's all these elsewheres kind of haunting it. And right. Yeah. No, I yeah. Think that's I, the only thing I worry about is that people take the time to think. <laughs> in our culture of speed, and you know, the way people digest things really quickly, and that what? that people can slow down still. Can people still slow down? I I hope so. I mean, it seems like like the one of the cliches of video art is that what makes it art is that it's boring. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you have to, yeah. you've got to sit through this thing and it's like nothing happens. Oh, that's because it's art. Here we are. Right. And I know that there are some artists who are like brilliantly timed and, and, and kind of web friendly and you can just kind of gobble it up and get it and get mm -hmm. out and that's cool. But this other thing of going to an art gallery and having this thing just sort of sit there and you look at your watch, yeah. like, how much time do I have? It's a, I think it's a kind of a complicated social negotiation. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Because the, I mean, I, as a spectator, I value my freedom. I, right. I'd like to, I'd like to be able to think what I want, and I'd like to be able to turn around if I mm -hmm. can, whenever I want. And so, dura you know, sort of durational um, demands sometimes seem um, socially aggressive. Yeah. Like really, I have to. You want me to? You really are insisting that I sit here for ten minutes? And there's benches in here, and I'm in a black room, and it's yeah. gonna be weird if I walk out in the middle. Yeah, I you know, feel got, the pressure. Right, I got ten more shows to see. Why should I give you more time yeah. than I give, um, you know, my favorite painter? Yeah. Anyway, 
it's complicated. It is, and it is aggressive in that sense. But it's kind of nice because it it forces, or it doesn't force them, I guess. But you know, there's a commitment to it. It's true, and if they can win you over, or if they they can, you know, fuck up your fuck up your uh, itinerary, mm-hmm. then they that's great. Yeah. Did you see the um, Christian Marclay's um, clock piece? You know, I feel like I have seen it, and I've got lots of feelings <laughs> and opinions about it, and I've seen all his other work, but I have not actually seen that one. Yeah. Which just seems, like, brilliant. It wins. Yeah, it's... Because you can do that. You can come in, see what time it is, get sucked in, yeah. sucked in more than you even anticipated, and and move on. It's a, in, in that sense, it is kind of like a painting. Like, you can go in and look at it as long as you want, and you kind of understand what's happening there, or you can bring your interpretation to it, and then you can cut out whenever you want to cut out. Yeah, come back a second and third time, and it's yeah. a little different each time. Yeah. I just wrote about the, the Rachel Rose piece that was at the Whitney. I don't know if you saw that. I didn't see it. Um, it was beautiful, and she found a way for it to be deeply situated in the space. Mm-hmm. It was on a translucent scrim, so that when the when the image got dark you could see through it mm-hmm. you could see through it in fact to the outside and you know see Frank Stella sculpture yeah. but it was also very psychedelic and the, and the sound design was, was compelling so it somehow solved this um, social social protocol of like a, you could see a fragment of it or you could see the whole thing and feel like you had a, an experience yeah it's it's interesting too the new Whitney the did you read the article that Sarah Rich wrote in Art Forum about it about the open space and it's just a different kind of museum because it embraces the outside in a way where right. usually museums like the Brewer you want to close everything off white cube but we're maybe we're not that kind of art viewing audience these days like you know everyone's got their phone every, it's a different kind of sure. relationship to viewing art now, did she did she praise it for that, like adapting to the new kind of cr- uh, criteria, or did she sort of m- lament a little? No, bit no, there? I think this is the kind of. Um, I mean, I don't want to. It's probably best to. Re- I feel like she was saying that this is the the way to. The productive way to approach, displaying work you know is to embrace the outside or is to not fight that and to incorporate it in because maybe that's just the way that we view things now or that that makes sense with the way that we're um associated or that we're acclimated to viewing artwork or viewing our world sure like tate Tate modern does that a bit like you have you you have this major breathtaking spectacle in the center Mm -hmm. with some kind of tangent um spaces to have have your private experience but i like how the whitney there's a kind of a narrative when you descend it's different from the guggenheim descent because yeah. you've it's a kind of a pyramid mm-hmm. and you start with one size and it gets bigger and bigger and in between you, you can walk outside yeah cleanse your cleanse your eyes immerse in the next thing ever larger yeah and uh, i think there's a kind of beautiful structure to that that not other museums have yeah I mean I feel like people love to complain about that sort of thing or there's always going to be people this isn't the way to see work but I, I love that the the variant of like in the Guggenheim it's such a weird building but I love that I love seeing work in that building yeah I do too you know it's just such a, cr- a crazy way okay I'm going to go up this ramp and then go back down the ramp it's such a weird way to see work but it you know it's it's really 
it's not like you see the work differently. In a way you do, because of the way it's displayed, but I mean, you're seeing the work as is, but it's such a great experience to make that kind of pilgrimage up and then coming back down. And, right. You know, the old, I don't know, it's the urban legend that the reason that he made the building like that is because the fire code, the code would be, there'd have to be a fire escape on each floor. So that way it's just one floor and there doesn't oh, need to be fire escapes. that's great. I don't know that's if that's hilarious. true or not. <laughs> I, I think story. there's a lot of ingenious architecture that's completely adapting to codes. Yeah. Civic codes. Working their way around things. But I like looking across, like across the atrium mm-hmm. and taking in the show in this other sort of peculiar way. Yeah. I don't particularly like having the having that space between a painting you know, when if, it's, if it's hanging on the wall yeah. and there's that little ramp between you and the thing and you can't put your nose on it. Yeah, it's, it reminds me of, it's like a state, like a little stage platform where right. you can't get up there. Yeah, that's true. It kind of blocks you off. I do like the um, submarine-powered toilets, though, in the bathroom. Oh, yes. I mean, if you get too close, you might go. <laughs> They're amazing. Is Mauricio um, Catalan's gold toilet in there yet i wonder i don't know it could be that that's a like a, a news item that has its own kind of power yeah like we're going to put the gold toilet in it's going to be a critique <laughs> of, of of value and, yeah um uh, a little bit scatological i mean that seems worth coming out of retirement even if it's just a kind of fictional piece yeah but i so, believe i believe the story i think it'll be there yeah um when you started showing your work in the city how did that how did you start um, Straight to the Guggenheim? No, yes. <laughs> yeah, I was, just, I was a, a smear navigating my way, kind of out of solitude. I wasn't, because I didn't go to art school, I didn't have a tribe. Um, but Micah's in art school. Yes, that's true, but they weren't here in New York for some reason. Yeah. They came, they've shown up. But I sort of bailed out a little bit early, mm-hmm. ahead of my class. And then the studio school, there were some people around, but I, but I was a little bit of a, I don't know, solitary. But I did, um, at a certain point, feel this kind of tremendous pressure. Like I had a ton of work in my studio, and it was Gotta the get it be- out there. yeah, it was the beginning of the '80s, and painting started to show up a little more than it had been. Mm-hmm. Uh, Neo expressionism, European um, trans avant garde, and so I thought, hey, well, I, I I totally have a place in this, and you know, made slides and took them around. Some some people didn't look at them and other ones did and I said yeah. I started to show. Yeah. Funny, uh, it's, it I think it was it didn't seem small and it didn't seem easy at all. Yeah. But I think the code now, the codes of of dealer courtship have become way more difficult yeah. and and kind of a cult. But you show you went door to door kind of and showing slides. Yeah, there were some galleries that I just thought, oh, they're showing interesting work that relates to mine. Yeah, and it seems to be they're taking a chance with young artists. There was Brooke Alexander was mm-hmm. one, and Alan Frumkin was one, and each of them at some point decided to show me. Mm-hmm. And the gallery that I uh, that I loved was McKee Gallery because that's where Philip Gustin showed, but yeah. they also showed like Via Selmans and um, and I had. Uh, I'd painted their walls. I was like a preparator and just mm-hmm. done, done some work. And so I knew David and asked him over to my studio, just not because I never imagined I'd show there. Uh, but he came over a couple times. And then when I was offered shows at these other galleries, I went to him for advice. Yeah. And he said, you should, you should um, negotiate from a position of strength. 
and I thought, I have no strength. What the, what the what are you talking about? That's ridiculous. <laughs> Easy yeah, okay, for me to yeah, say. Thank yeah. you. Thank you, Osage <laughs> dealer. Uh, and then I got a call the next day. He said, could you come up here? I want to talk to you about something. He said, I want to show you. Mm-hmm. No, he said, I want to work with you. And I'm like, what does that mean? Does that mean I should not show with Alan Frumkin? Yes, means that. How about, what about Brooke Alexander? No, you shouldn't show with him either. And so I ended up showing with him for like 18 years. Mm-hmm. And I was, I think, maybe the youngest artist still after 18 years. That's a, and that's a anyway. long relationship. It's a weird, yeah, it's, it's cool and strange and has pluses and minuses. And um, there were moments when I could have shown with other galleries that mm-hmm. were younger, more my age, showing, showing my peers. But I somehow... Um, I didn't do it. I yeah. thought, oh, I, I kind of like this, this kind of ins- insulated, kind of protected thing. Yeah. But it also took me out of the out of the loop a bit, mm-hmm. and so I missed out on some things. But anyway, I've been showing since my first show was in '84, and I've been showing since then. Yeah. So since you've had that long track record, how do you feel about the current state of things? Is it all cyclical? I mean, I it's, I've been I feel like I've been fortunate enough in my art career quote unquote uh, you know of having some some friends former teachers people i showed with who have been around the block for a few decades and have you know given me advice about the cyclical right. nature of things you know yeah that's part of it i mean there's definitely kind of stylistic cycles mm-hmm. that roll in and out but there's a but there's been a kind of a scale uh explosion that's the big shift right and that's the, that's huge um there goes my phone. Um, so the scale that, shift is... There was something I thought very exciting in the 90s, and mm-hmm. maybe this relates to what you are talking about with music earlier, but there was a kind of, um, like a deeper uh, pluralization. Yeah. And, and it seemed like everybody got a little bit better at what they were doing compared to the 80s. Mm-hmm. Sort of explosion of painting, which was just a lot of very crappy stuff and kind of histrionic... Um, I don't know, postured paintings. Yeah. Somehow in the '90s, it it got it sort of really uh, expanded. Outsider art meant more. Mm-hmm. Um, all the sort of critical uh, influences rolled in. Um, postmodernism got it was digested and sort of moved past its initial kind of stylistic obviousness. And I thought that was very exciting. And then it seemed like what happened was when when tons more money rolled in. That that hyper pluralism kind of started to erode people's ability to assess like what matters. Yeah, it, it seemed like all the all, every criteria could kind of coexist and right. at a certain point. Um, and this is what I kind of feel now a bit that that values determined socially. Yeah, more than it's ever been. Now that's always it's always true to some extent, but if the right three people agree that this is what matters, right. then it comes to matter. Well, that's interesting. That's art. Uh, in a way, like collective fiction, the collective fiction of it. Um, but now it's so broad. I would imagine that's way more broad. Way more broad. It's like almost every movement, every every kind of stylistic turn, every technology that ever existed continues now yeah. in some pocket or other. Right. And that what what is the most successful pocket uh, sort of cycles, and that's yeah. what you're talking about. So let's say right now in this early summer of 2016 it seems like figuration is back whoa yeah. that's cool you know but we, and we had a whole little run of abstraction I'm just talking about like within painting mm-hmm. um, 
you know, that that can't possibly have depth. You know, I think that's just a sort of the uh, a kind of appetite, collective yeah. appetite for the next thing. And so that that's to me is part of the the, the you know psych- periodicity of the cycling. Yeah, and but who's dry? It's interesting too. Is it the artists? Because it seems like group shows and nowadays, maybe it's a, a byproduct too of social media. It does seem like the artists are driving maybe a little more of, um, I don't know, the voice of that in a way. Or, or there's, because, you know, there's people who are getting a lot of views and people seeing and familiarizing themselves with the work of artists who have a big following online or in social media. And that, I'm sure dealers are seeing that and saying like, oh, well, this person's been in a bunch of group shows and, you know, and this work looks kind of like this show's kind of championing that work. I wonder the influence of that, too, on the whole thing. I think it's huge, but it's part of an ecology. It's huge maybe within the demographics of artists. I mean, there's just seems like there's more artists than there's ever been. And so as artists kind of rise up out of their sort of peer community into exhibition, mm-hmm. you know, venues. Um, that has a lot of play. And then there's a kind of more established galleries that are sort of picking, on, picking out the ones yeah. that are kind of rising to the top of that. And then there's this other like huge strata of like auction yeah. and big money and, and international juggernaut galleries. That in a way has nothing to do with it. No, they're their stuff. own machine. It's they really like music, less. isn't it? Like the music industry, because you've got the young kind of, you know, indie labels, and there's a lot of support for that, but it's all kind of small budget or whatever, you know. But there's, and there's the support of fellow bands who tour each with each other and get on record labels or whatever, and they kind of work their way up. And then there's those major labels you know, that it will pick some of those, but they're kind of working. Right. They seem a little disconnected from that, you know, that grassroots. But And then there's the labels that are just, you know, driving the Beyonce's of the world or whatever, you know, that it's just a whole nother ballgame. And maybe that's okay. Maybe that's appropriate. And, and in a way, you know, when painting, let's say, goes out of style and there doesn't mean there's no painters and there's yeah. plenty going on. And in some ways, it's just a, it just scaled slightly differently, mm-hmm. and I guess people adapt and maybe even find their own way in it. I mean, I think of uh, some some an artist like Jeff Koons, let's say, who I think doesn't really have a lot to do with what most artists do in terms yeah. of like studio practice and developing things. It's another model. He's been very successful at it, and now it's he's kind of achieved his uh, achieved this thing. And, yeah. Um, and in a way, it's, it doesn't it doesn't conform to the same um, uh, the same descriptions we're we're applying to you know the, these, these other kind of cycling and periodicity of yeah. of style and uh, the feed the food chain of right of um, of a career yeah it's just a separate well the thing that I in my maybe I am getting slightly older and getting grumpy about these things or, or because I'm very uh, interested in a lot of what of younger artists and what they're doing and a lot of things that are going on but the one thing I'm really skeptical about is not so much maybe the pluralism or like people borrowing styles from specific art historical moment like this kind of abstraction or that it to me it's rigor like the feeling that maybe some artists are just kind of picking 
I'll kind of do that. That's kind of cool, and do sure. that, and it's you like know. Strat- like strategizing. Yeah, they, they and uh, for me, I mean, that's often like a deal breaker. If I go into a show and I feel all the machinating of an artist calculating this and having this yeah. design on my response, and maybe even sort of underwriting it slyly with some intellectual pedigree, mm-hmm. I tend to kind of say no. Yeah. Like, um, you're too bossy. Right. Please, you know, or <laughs> you're straining. You're, you, you, have, you care too much about what I respond, what, yeah. I, what I'm going to think about it. Um, like you're not getting lost in you in the studio. Yeah. Your, your radar is too pointed out to what's, right. what's either going to be said about it or what, the way it's going to be interpreted. And I guess one of the things I one of the things I really do like about MFA teaching mm-hmm. is that it it really is a kind of conversation, a rolling conversation about what matters. Yeah. And each individual, each student, brings a set of urgencies and priorities that is a that gets adjusted and and uh, engages the conversation in a way that changes the way I, as a teacher, look at things. Yeah. So even if it's you know a very familiar set of idioms that they're using, or Im- images, um, they're probably using them for slightly different reasons. Yeah. And so trying to kind of calibrate, get get inside of how those images might function now, what they might mean for them, what the history is that leads to them. That's that's to me like deep and real. Yeah. Uh, conversation. Well, one thing I've noticed. I, I mean, I don't teach in the city. I teach outside the city, but. Um, I've visited and done visiting lectures, you know, and programs in the city is the people here in New York who are getting their MFA are way more attuned to contemporary, like of what's going on now with artists working now and kind of heavily, it, I feel like it weighs more heavily than someone outside the city. You know what I'm th- like, Yeah, I, I, I think I know what you're saying. I, I mean, I do know what you're saying, but I've noticed in some schools outside the city that the, that the internet has that some kind of researching geeks know everybody, yeah. artists in every gallery, and they know all the shows, but they haven't seen a single one. Yeah, and that's a slightly new condition. Yeah, I mean, I remember people worried about the effect of magazines on, on let's say, the art scene in Australia, something mm-hmm. like that. People would be influenced by by European and American art based on magazines. Right, but now it's sort of that exaggerated by a hundred. Yeah. Well, I, that's what I, I used to read art forms and art in America since in undergrad. And that's how, that was my relationship with work. You know, I only, and that's why when I did go to see those shows, it blew me away because it was so different in person. But now I notice with a lot of like younger artists, like the BFA, like, you know, those, they're influenced by like Instagram, like, like feeds of artists who you've never, that aren't quote unquote in the canon of showing you know what I'm saying? Just yes. these Instagram artists who are painters, and they're it, really into their work, and you've never heard of them or seen their work displayed. It's astonishing to see. I mean, I put up work every once in a while, and mm-hmm. I put up work regularly, actually, on Instagram. You know, and I'm happy to get 100 likes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'll go through the sort of random uh, search feature, yeah, yeah. and I'll see something kind of interesting, and I've never heard of the person. It's thousands. maybe I'll say, thousands. Yeah. What is this? How did you... What did... Is that something that gets cultivated? Do they do they strategize Instagram space, or do they do they like everything in sight and hence you know get a reciprocal get thing? I don't. I mean, it's it's kind of a weird mystery. Or is there some spontaneous? Is there some feature of that image 
that appeals to people? I think it's the, um, at risk of sounding old or out of time, I think it's just uh, the snowball effect, the online snowball effect. So it's like a viral video. It could be any stupid video, but if it gets posted to a certain blog and people catch on to it, it takes a life of its own. So if I've had a friend who got his image featured on Instagram's main page, then it just... He's right. got, had like hundreds of thousands of followers. But doesn't virality require a certain um, content, com- certain kind of compellingness? Yeah. You know, maybe it's compelling only within a, you know, sort of a three-second envelope. Yeah, any universality. Like something that just maybe connects. There's like a core connect of people like, oh, that's cool. Right. Because when you see something in a two-inch by two-inch square on a flat screen, there's a diff- I think there's a different protocol for like what will grab your attention or what's like, oh, that's cool compared right. to, you know, walking into a gallery which has a whole different set of you know critique that goes on there it's just very hard to discern what what that would be within let's say paintings yes on instagram it's well it's two worlds that don't really need to be combined (laughs) that are combined in a way you know it's like um you know cat pictures do great like that's the perfect venue for it you know showing your you know five by eight foot paintings in that medium is is a weird thing you know or getting two millimeters away from a nipple yeah it's amazing i mean it seems like there's just vast armies of people playing peekaboo with yeah (laughs) it's very strange isn't it that it because it's fairly recent and it really affects the way people think about you know worth or like what's successful or what's not successful as far as like because we're all in the field of people looking at stuff that we're making whether it's you know a fashion photography or whether it's you know a graphic designer or it's a furniture designer or it's a painter in you know des moines or whatever we're all we want people to respond to these images that we're making but now there's such a different scale of interaction with it that i think is so different than the old school old-fashioned way of walking into the white cube yeah for years i i was a source-driven artist Mm -hmm. and would troll bookstores and old magazine stores and for, for peculiar magazines and images, just yeah. hunting for images that I could riff on or linger on or be estranged from or um, build a painting yeah. on. And, and in fact, I really loved images that kind of freaked me out that, that somebody loved this thing or someone was turned on by it mm-hmm. and I would make a painting inside my disorientation with regards to those those requests, demands. And so um, Google and the internet just opened that up tremendously, but it also rendered all those kind of hard-won source searches um, pointless, null. But now, you know, if I need an image of an airplane or something, just, just call it up. But Instagram has weirdly delivered up images peculiar intimacies um you know i feel like you sort of looking through a kind of a social space into intimate spaces yeah and i think painting can crawl in there and linger on it and build on it i've got a drawing right now of, of a guy who's passed out on a couch and there he's and his phone is being charged and there's something <laughs> about that wire going into the wall it's laying there dormant you know waiting for yeah. for juice and he's passed out and like Hmm, that's worth a painting, and I'm. So you're kind of mining that now. For, I'm totally for mining it, and I don't know who's 
image that is, I, I don't think I'm going to be um, vulnerable to yeah to copyright, copyright. Uh, problems. But um, hey, but you it, put it out there. I mean, yeah. you know, if someone puts things out there like that, it's kind of they're sharing it with the world, right? Well, that's what I thought. I think Richard Prince thinks that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, it's one. Yeah. He's he's pretty one on one, you know. But yeah, that's if people are putting those. Things but he's out kind there. of badass. It's sort of cool. I I think he's. Um, it's amazing that he's kind of turned what he does into like a huge financial success. Yeah. Because it seems so um, so kind of arcane. Yeah, it doesn't look or feel it, but he's he's done it. Yeah. And does the social side of that enter that equation at all, I wonder? I guess oh. you're, like you're saying it always does, right? Yeah, you mean like if two people, if three people agree that this is worth something yeah. and, they, and they bid against each other, then it becomes worth more. Right. That's true. Yeah. That's the social part. Yeah. And I guess... Th- but you have to have kind of, I think in order to enter that game of like a big money auction mm-hmm. battle, you have to have passed at least a whole series of auditions, yeah. some amount of institutional support, um, enough commercial success to have it sort of underwritten. Right, the gauntlet. Yes. Yet, beautifully, it's all underwritten by the idea that it's all bullshit. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's the you you've built that's the the thing that we try yeah. to build up like, you know, we try to make ourselves feel like, oh no, but I've studied and well, they've just built up that long resume and history and working in all the yeah. museum shows and all that, but at the same at the end of the day, it's just it's all magic. Well, like money. What is money? You know, you yeah. think it's a it's a social relation, it's a consensual fiction, but where's the Where's the thing? Yeah. It's, uh, it's not. It's not. But that's life, too, you know, in, in general. It's just always, you know, a part of, I think a lot of artists feel this, that, that have this feeling that, you know, well, what we're doing, there's no there's no framework. There's no support. It's, it's just like a freelance, you know, kind of, there's no kind of stability. But there's none with anything, really. Right. And so you know? I think we're in the business of kind of highlighting that, celebrating it, shifting shifting the terms so that new things obtain value or significance yeah. under under a kind of um, you know peculiar sort of ephemeral craft yeah yeah but what we're doing I think is more real even though we're making magic and artifice because we're living in that environment of real life there is no stability there's no sort of support system in a way you know what i'm saying like the person who goes out and works the advertising job they feel like oh this is a real job i've got support there's a structure to this but it's not really they're being no that's true that's true so that's why they hate us they hate our freedom right exactly yeah (laughs) even though george w bush they don't want our paycheck or they don't want our benefits plan but they do hate our freedom right (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's that's we've got a couple things going for us right well, is that a, cool. is that a, uh, that seems like a fine conclusion. Yes, but we, I think we're going to, down the line, we'll have to do part two and do a little more music talk. Oh, I, I would know love you've to. got a lot more to speak about as far as that's concerned. Yes, right. But yeah, it was great. Thanks for having me over. It was great to chat. And oh, yeah. I look forward to talking some more in the future. Thank you. Thanks. The man with two first names. <laughs> Thanks.